Well, as you know, the last few weeks we've been working through the book of Ephesians. And this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote is unlike any of the other letters that he wrote that um, have been collected and are part of our New Testament. It's unique in that it doesn't deal with any specific problem that's happening in one of the churches that Paul founded that he now feels like he has to write to them and try and fix or deal with. No, instead Paul wrote this letter to help the Ephesians understand just who they are. Specifically, who they are now because they have been included in the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to understand fully what a great gift they've been given. For you see, Ephesians deals more comprehensively with and seeks to help us understand the church more than any other book in the New Testament. Paul starts this letter to the Ephesians um, just to let them know how much they've been blessed in Jesus Christ. In fact, the letter begins with a whole chapter of praise and thanksgiving to God for all that God has done for them in Christ. And then Paul tells them that they have been brought from death to life because of Christ and that this is a free gift of God's grace. In other words, the Ephesians didn't earn it. They really don't even deserve it. But it's because of God's great love that the Ephesians and all the Gentiles have been adopted into God's family along with the Jews. And this, this is amazing news. Well, today we're taking a look at chapter 3 of Ephesians. And Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians while he's being held as a prisoner in Rome. And he's being held as a prisoner for their sake, he writes. For the sake of the Ephesians and for the sake of all the Gentiles. Because you'll remember, Paul was given a very unique task by Jesus himself to take the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, nobody saw this coming, especially the Jews. It was unthinkable that God would want to include the Gentiles into the covenant family, the covenant people of Israel. But that's exactly the people group to whom Christ himself told Paul to go. And go, he did. Paul converted so many Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ that it shook up the world. It shook up the status quo and it ticked off some really powerful people. And so Paul was arrested. And at the end of his trial, he appealed his case to the Roman emperor. And so that's how he finds himself now sitting in prison in Rome. Paul calls the church a mystery. And it's a mystery because God chose not to reveal his purpose until the timing was perfect, until God's timing was made perfect in Jesus Christ. And the mystery is that God wanted to reveal that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This was huge news to the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus. 
And you have to remember that the church back in this time, this day and age, looked really different than the church does today. They didn't have a beautiful sanctuary like we have to worship in. They didn't have a building at all, as a matter of fact. They didn't have a lot of organizational structure. It looked a lot more like a house church. It might look something more like the small group that you're a part of here at Anderson Hills that meets in someone's home or in one of the classrooms every week or two. That's what the church looked like in Ephesus. And it was then that Paul said something that probably sounded crazy to this ragtag little group of Jesus followers. He said that it was through them, it was through them that God in all of his wisdom had decided to reveal to the entire universe his eternal purpose in Christ. He's not just going to reveal it to little Ephesus and this ragtag group of Christians meeting there. He's not going to reveal his purpose even to Ephesus and the few remain, or surrounding villages and towns around Ephesus. He's not even planning to only reveal it to the whole Roman Empire, which was pretty big in the whole known world at that time. No, God is going to reveal it to the entire universe, to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly realms, he says. This eternal purpose that he's made known in Christ Jesus. Remember, this church in Ephesus has no building. They have no clout. They don't have a Facebook page or any social media. They don't have a television station that's going to broadcast their message on Sunday morning. So how were they to share God's purpose with the whole universe? I mean, think about it. It seems unlikely at best, doesn't it? And impossible at worst. And yet that is exactly the bold statement that Paul makes in this letter. And then Paul tells the Ephesians how this is going to be accomplished. Because they have been adopted into God's family, they can approach God with freedom and confidence. Remember, Christ opened the way for them to do that when he died on the cross and took away their sins. Remember, when Christ died on the cross, during his crucifixion, as he died, the the curtain in the temple that had separated for years and years and years the people of God and even the priests of God except the one high priest and that only on one day of the year it had separated from them them from God but when Jesus was crucified that that curtain was torn in two it was ripped in half and everyone then had direct access to God you see like a busy CEO who's never too busy to take a phone call from his son or his daughter. And a son or daughter that doesn't have to go through his receptionist or secretary, but a son or daughter that calls that, that designated cell phone line that, that is a personal one that belongs to dad 24-7, 365 days a year. That's the kind of access Paul is saying that you and I and the Ephesians have to God. That we don't do anything on our own strength, but it's all in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can accomplish God's purposes for us in the church. And we can do that because we can go to God directly in prayer. And then in the middle of this chapter, chapter 3, Paul himself goes to the throne of God with freedom and with confidence. 
and he begins to pray for the Ephesians. I'm reading today beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians 3. You can follow along in your own Bible if you brought it with you or you can follow along on the screen. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a really serious prayer for Paul. Unlike the custom of his day when most people stood up when they prayed, Paul kneels. Think about the parable which our Lord Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector that went to the temple to pray. You remember how the Pharisee stood there in the temple praying to God and thanking God that he wasn't like that nasty old sinner tax collector over there who also stood praying yet humbly wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and just ask God for mercy. But in instances in the New Testament where people do kneel to pray, it's usually because the situation is grave and serious. Think about Jesus who knelt to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he met with death. Stephen prays that God would forgive his executioners as he knelt to pray, and they began to throw stones at him. In the book of Acts, Paul kneels before the Ephesian elders as he departs for Jerusalem, knowing very well that he will probably never see them again. Paul's kneeling in today's passage conveys the deep emotion and the love that he feels for the Ephesians. He's also kneeling to show how humble he is before God, the God from whom every family in heaven and on earth receives its name. You see, the family of God is a really big family, and we all have the same Father in heaven. The God who created everything in the universe, the God who has power over everything, is the same Father that knows you, that loves you, who names you. And this letter to the Ephesians is teaching us that God is expanding the family greatly by grafting in the Gentiles into the family tree of Israel through their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we too become part of God's family because of God's unsurpassed love for us. We cannot earn it. We cannot be good enough for it. 
We have not become part of God's family because of our own merit. It's because of God's love for us when we don't even deserve it. God's love for us, his love for you and his love for me is so great that it's pretty hard for us to even get our minds around. And yet coming to understand his great love for us and growing in our understanding of God's great love for us gets us rooted and grounded in this supreme love that God has for us. It allows us to grow in the second half of the gospel, profound love for God and for our neighbor. Speaking of growing in your faith, I want to remind you that next Sunday, May 2nd, at 9.30 for three weeks, we're going to be offering our spiritual growth track here at the church. And this class is designed to help you identify where you are spiritually and to learn how to move on your journey of following Jesus, loving God and loving others more and more. You can find out more details about it and sign up on the events page on the church website. Well, getting back to being rooted and growing, last year I planted two new viburnum and two new lilac bushes in my yard. I have to confess to you I'm an absolute sucker for spring flowering shrubs that smell as fantastically great as viburnum and lilac do. Can I get an amen from someone here in the sanctuary? And I knew that these roots needed to grow down deep in order to support the shrub above and to produce all those amazingly good-smelling flowers that I was hoping they would produce. And so I dug this hole in the ground that was twice the size of the root ball so that when it was under the ground, those roots could spread out and take hold and, and support that plant above. Because you see, all shrubs and trees need strong root systems in order to sustain them. And each Christian needs a strong root system to stay grounded in God's love. And a church needs a strong root system to really grow in God's love too. One of the reasons that I've been so happy to begin to see some light at the end of the tunnel from this year-long pandemic we've been in is because more and more of you are feeling comfortable enough to come back into the community of faith in person, live and in person. And I've discovered, again, how much I need the community of faith. I need you around me. You need, all, we all need each other to be around us, to be rooted and grounded in faith and help each other grow. I've loved seeing more and more people in worship each week. And I'm also looking forward to ramping up once again our opportunities to serve, as Bill was mentioning a moment ago, because it takes each and every one of us to serve out of our unique giftings and capacities and, and talents in our God-given ways to enable the church to function properly. So be watching in the next week or so for opportunities for you to serve in the short term and also begin praying today about how you think God is calling you um, to serve the church and to serve the world. Well, back to getting rooted and grounded. Once we are really rooted and grounded in God's love for us, Paul prays that we might begin to understand just how wide and long and high and deep is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but whenever I try and think about or imagine how big God's love is for me, I try and think of something that's really, really big, like the size of the Pacific Ocean or something like that. Now, I know that the Pacific Ocean is quantifiable. I mean, it's deep, but it has a depth that we can actually measure and know what it is. And I know that it has a huge surface area, bigger than any other ocean, but it, is, it does have a surface area that can be known, even though it's so big. So then what I do is I usually try and think of something even bigger, like outer space. Do you ever do that too? I think about the universe, and that it's one of those unquantifiable entities, and it just really starts to blow your mind if you begin to think about the size of the universe, doesn't it? I mean, I usually start thinking about questions like, well, what happens when you get to the end of outer space? And if you can get to the end of outer space, then what's on the other side of that? It's like, you know, your mind just kind of explodes right there. You see, God's love is so wide that it covers everything in the entire world. No, it covers everything in the universe. My friend, there is no place where you can ever go that you will ever be outside of the love of God. And his love is so long that it has no beginning and it has no end. From the beginning of time until time is no more, that's how long God's love is for you. His love is high. It reaches to the highest heights of heaven and it reaches the heights of our celebrations and our joys and our mountaintop experiences. And his love is deep. There is not one single pain or sorrow or grief or illness that God does not reach right down and enter into our discouragement, our despair, even death, right there with us. It's hard to imagine a love so big, isn't it? But that's the kind of love that God has for us. And that's the kind of love that Paul prays that you will know very well. I want to tell you another story about God's love. This one from the Old Testament. It's the story of Hosea and Gomer. You see, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God called a prophet by the name of Hosea. Now, prophets, as you know, were called to speak for God. And sometimes they were also called to live out a word from God by demonstration or by object lesson. Think about the prophet Jeremiah and the potter's wheel. Or think about the prophet Amos and that plumb line. Now, lots of times, prophets' assignments from God were really difficult, really hard. But Hosea's makes most of the others pale in comparison, I think. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. I cannot even imagine being in Hosea's sandals. He probably thought at first that maybe he'd heard God incorrectly. Surely there was a mistake. God couldn't be serious about what he was asking. 
but God was serious. And Hosea was obedient in following the Lord. And so he married a prostitute named Gomer, who represented Israel's unfaithfulness to God. For you see, Israel was very unfaithful to God during this period in her history. The people worshipped the false gods and idols of the people who lived around them, and thereby they prostituted themselves. And so Hosea married Gomer, and he saved her from this life of prostitution. Hosea was willing to scandalize himself in order to follow God's call, and he graciously saved Gomer from such an evil, dangerous life. She has a roof over her head now. She has clothes on her back. She has good food to wear, all, all good food to eat, all provided by her husband, Hosea. Hosea and Gomer go on to have three children, and you'd probably think that her life would be all cleaned up and, and kind of respectable by now. But you'd be wrong, because although she's married to Hosea, she does the unthinkable. She still keeps cheating on her husband. Her children are children of her adulterous relationships. And Gomer says, I will go after my lovers who give me water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. But she was wrong. It was not her lovers who provided these things. It was her husband who provided everything she needed. And then finally she comes to her senses and she realizes that that is true. And she says, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Isn't that just like us sometimes? We forget to give thanks to God for providing us with everything that we need. And yet when the bottom falls out, and when we start hurting or struggling, we run to God. Now don't get me wrong, that is a good thing to run to God. It's always a good thing to run to God. It's never a bad thing to run to God. He's always patient. God is always waiting. God is always ready to take us back. He is faithful even when we are not. But how much better it is to never turn away in the first place. How much better it is to turn to God in realization and gratitude for all of God's loving care. Hosea had provided for Gomer everything that she needed, and she still stepped out on Hosea. She took the blessings that he gave her, and she offered them to idols. And then if you can believe it, the story gets even worse. You see, God loves us with an unconditional love. Unearned, undeserved, and so many times unreciprocated by us. God gives Hosea an even more difficult command just to show us what God's supreme love really looks like. God says, here's what you're going to do. Go and find her. Hosea 3.1 The Lord said to me, go and love your wife again even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So Hosea goes looking for Gomer, 
in the back alley and in the red light district, all the places where a respectable man of God should never find himself. And he finds her and he redeems her. He buys her out of prostitution for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. In the middle, right in the middle of Gomer's sin, rejection, and shame comes her husband, Hosea, and he sees her and he loves her. She is already his wife. She belongs to him. And still, he buys her back. He pays the price to redeem her. And he lifts her out of her shameful state. And he takes her home again. I am Gomer. You are Gomer. And Jesus Christ, he's Hosea. This is what Jesus is getting at when he explained why he came to earth. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. My friends, we are loved. You are loved and I am loved which is with a love that is far greater than we can ever even begin to imagine. 1 John 4, 9 and 11 puts it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We've been talking this year about moving into the second half of the gospel, haven't we? You remember in the first half of the gospel, we experience God's love, we accept it, and then we usually get busy doing something. But you see, God isn't finished with us yet, and he wants to give us so much more. It's in the second half of the gospel that we often find spiritual discontent that leads to brokenness and eventually surrender and, and complete submission to God. Just like in Hosea's day, there was spiritual discontent in the land. And much as I imagine Hosea was broken by the request God made of him regarding the message to Israel that he demonstrated through his marriage to Gomer, through it all, he absolutely surrendered and submitted to God. It is only then that we move into total and intimate love with God and finally love for our neighbor. The same kind of unconditional, unfathomable, unsurpassing, high, wide, long, and deep love that God has for us. It's an amazing mission that God has given the church, isn't it? To show to the whole world, the whole universe, the love of Christ Jesus. This is how the church proclaims God's love to the world. We are God's tangible example of his incredible love to this community and to the whole world. There are gomers everywhere. Will you actually love them? Even when it's 
really, really hard, even when they hurt you, even when they take what you give them and turn around and waste it. First John says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You see, the love that the church expresses, expresses God's plan for the world. So let's demonstrate God's plan for the world, Anderson Hills, to the seeker who comes walking through our doors looking for God, to the guest who sits down to a meal at a Thursday evening community dinner at Salem, to the hurting people in Mount Washington, Anderson Township, Cincinnati, the world, to those hurting in Appalachia, to those halfway around the world in Zambia, indeed to the entire world. Anderson Hills, we are the tangible expression of Christ for the world and God's plan to redeem the world. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we give you thanks. Thanks that when we were lost in our sin, going our own way, you came looking for us. You found us, you loved us, and you redeemed us, and you set us on a rock. We thank you, God, that your church, the church of Jesus Christ, is your plan that you have revealed to the entire universe of how you are redeeming the world back to you. God, we thank you that your love is wide and high and long and deep and so great that it surpasses our understanding, that there's not one place that we can go to be outside of your love. Lord, would you help us to embrace your love, to be rooted and grounded in it, to understand and comprehend as best we can how great your love is, so that once we begin to understand that, we want to do nothing more than to run and share with the whole world how big and great your love is, so that they can know it too. Lord, use us, your church, to accomplish your purposes in the world. We pray through Christ our Lord and all God's people said, Amen.